Welcome to the Wish I'd Known Men podcast, where we focus on how authors found success, looking at strategies that have taken them to the top of the bestseller charts, as well as what they've learned from their mistakes. Because being an indie author is more than knowing the latest marketing trend. It's about being innovative and creative and learning from your mistakes. Welcome to the Wish I'd Known Them podcast. I'm Sarah Rosette. And I'm Jamie Albright. And this week on the show, we have... H.Y. Hannah. Yes, it, it was such a great interview. I mean, she is, she's very self-spoken, but she's so smart. Like, I mean, just super, super smart about what she's done. And she made some mistakes or things that she wished she'd done differently, but they got her to the place she is now. So it's always great. Yeah. So she shares those things and she shares that. Yeah. Yeah. She shares the different things she's learned from. She's we talk about some covers that she learned some lessons about, and we're going to include yes. those yes. in the show notes. And um, talking about like dealing with your internal editor as you're writing, and also it's interesting. She talked about um, expectations that her family had regarding writing or not writing, and yeah. how she dealt with that. And yeah. so, yeah. I think it's a really good interview, and I think it'd be really helpful just yes. to cover a lot in the we interview. Do. So, do. Yeah. Yeah. So what's been going on with you this week? Uh, well, I'm visiting my family this week, so I'm not doing much. Um, I am watching a show, a new show. It's a new translation. New. Uh, it's in French this time. It's a mm-hmm. French detective show. It's called, I think, The Art of Crime. Oh. And um, it's all about like uh, art theft crime unit, or not theft, but like crime, a mm-hmm. unit in France that investigates crime somehow related to around art and famous paintings and stuff. It's very interesting. It, um, that's, you know, kind of what my on the run series kind of revolves around some of that kind of, kind yeah. of stuff. So it's right up my alley and it's got the uh, quirky art history consultant and yeah. the by the book, well, not by the book, but the cop that she's dealing with has no knowledge of art at all. And he's like, I don't need to know about art to catch thieves. And so there's like, there's a really good relationship dynamic there where they're yeah, that you know, creates conflict right there. Yes. Yeah. So it's good. So I've been watching that and definitely not G rated. So if you're, you know, don't, don't get into it if you're yeah. looking for something from Hallmark, <laughs> but it's very good. Not yeah. sensitive, but just, yeah, I get yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so what about you? Well, I have just been working on my edits and I am pretty much done. Um, I leave today. This is Friday the 16th to go. Mm-hmm. I'll be gone for two weeks and I'm going two different, really three different places. Uh, so I really wanted to be done. Um, I have a couple of little things that I need to work out, but, but other than that, uh, the book will go to the editor ne- next week sometime. Mm-hmm. Um, it was due on the 26th, but I'm, I'll be out of the country actually, even on the tw- on the 25th. So I'll send it a few days early. Um, but I also wanted to tell people, and I have not read this book yet, but it was came highly, highly recommended to me. And actually, the person gifted it to me um, yesterday, so I appreciate it. Um, she's one of our listeners, and I, I really appreciate it, Amy. Um, but it's called My Story Can Beat Up Your Story, and it's about plotting, and um, but in kind of a different way. And... Um, she swears by it, so I'm looking very forward to reading it. And there are some, like, uh, sample um, like templates um, in the book so that you can download. So that's very cool. So I'm look, well, looking that forward sounds, to that. 
Yeah. I love that title. Yeah, I know. Me too. And it's funny because it's got a little kid. He looks like, you know, like a little bully kid. Um, that he, or not the bully kid, but like, he's not going to take any crap from you. Yeah. Uh, it's really cute. So, yeah. um, anyway, well, yeah, that's about it. That's going yeah. on. Well, I did learn a new uh, plotting technique that I'd never heard of. I mean, I'd heard of it, but I didn't know exactly how it worked. Spaghetti Mm -hmm. pole, spaghetti bowl plotting. Have you Mm -hmm. heard of this? No. So you just take a big sheet of paper. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I was like, I don't know if I want to learn about this, but it's actually very simple. It's basically a mind map. You take a big sheet of paper, you write down all your characters' names, like over in a big circle, and then you you figure out how everybody's connected. So you draw lines between the connections of the people. And I was trying it today or um, on the plane flight that I took up here. I tried Mm -hmm. it. I was like, I'll just rough out kind of my idea for my book and see what I can do. And it's interesting because it helps you figure out the connections between the people. And uh, that's something I have to do. You know, like my mysteries have to figure Mm -hmm. out who Mm -hmm. and why all these people could be suspects. So yeah. Very yeah. interesting. So I kind of was doing a version of it. I just didn't know what it was called. Yeah. Didn't know I was doing spaghetti bowl plotting. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that was fun. So we need a question of the week. So what should we talk oh, about this week? Yeah. Well, let's talk about the family thing. I think that's like, do you self-edit because you know your family members are going to read your books? How about that? I think that's great. Yes. And I actually chose my genre because I knew people I knew would be reading my book. <laughs> so I was like, I can read mysteries, I can write mysteries, and I can hand these off to friends and family, you know, <laughs> without being worried <laughs> about what they would think of me. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get on with this uh, show because H. Y. Hannah, it was great. Let's Very good. Yeah. Here we go. So today we have H.Y. Hannah with us, and the initials of her first name are H.Y., but her real name is Sin Yi. So hi, Sin Yi. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? We are great. We're so happy to have you here. So let me read your bio, and we'll jump into the questions. Um, Sin Yi is an award-winning mystery writer and the author of the best-selling Oxford Tea Room Mysteries. After graduating from Oxford University, Sin Yi tried her hand at a variety of jobs before returning to her first love, writing. Very good. So tell us how you got into writing. Uh, okay. Um, I was actually thinking about this, and I, I know, like, everybody usually says, you know, I've always wanted to be a writer. And, and I, I, you know, like a lot of people, I did. But actually, I spent most of my early life trying not to be a writer. So really? trying to avoid it or trying to run away from it. Um, and I think partly, well, mainly because I don't know if you know, but in, you know, in Asian cultures, mm-hmm. there are only really four acceptable careers, you know, that mm-hmm. you could be a doctor, mm-hmm. a lawyer, an accountant, or a dentist, mm-hmm. or, or a teacher at a push. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, um, you're, you're sort of, grow, you grow up with those expectations that mm-hmm. you mustn't sort of have a proper job and, yeah. and, um, and definitely nothing creative. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, being a sort of, there's a word in it in, in Chinese, like entertainer, you know, it's mm-hmm. said with yeah. disdain. Um, and it's like a dancer, artist, you know, anything in that sort of field, mm-hmm. because it's a very, um, I mean, it's just true. It's a very unpredictable right. Um, right. Kind of career. Right. And, yeah. and, and, you know, Chinese people are generally very practical. And I mean, which is, you know, the right thing that you should right. pick something that's going to give you a steady income and reliable, et cetera. So right. um, I think, you know, I grew up very much with that, fixed in my head that you mustn't even think about consider anything remotely creative mm-hmm. um, and 
and and so I I think you know I I spent a lot of time denying it, and even though actually I was writing all the time, I was writing you know I wrote a diary every single day from the age of six all the way into university. <laughs> so every wow. single day, religiously, I wrote in a diary, like pages and pages, not just you know. Um, and I wrote you know letters to people. Like I mean, I feel sorry for the poor people who got letters from me. <laughs> like dozens of A4 pages of, you know, in great descriptive detail of things I'm sure they didn't want to know. <laughs> but it was just all kind of come out. Um, and if I wasn't writing that, I was writing shopping lists. I was, you know, I was always writing something. Right, um, right, and it right. was something that, you know, like in school, I couldn't wait to get the English, um, well, we, we, we call it English composition, you, you know, like the, the assignment to write things. Everyone else hated it and I couldn't wait to get it. <laughs> um, a lot of, you know, I think it's like you're trying to deny that part of yourself. Yes. But anyway, yeah. you know, I, I sort of ignored it, went off to university, did a science degree, you know, did all the things that were expected of me um, mm-hmm. and came out. And at the time, you know, that was very big. The sort of management consultancy was the sort of yeah. graduate career thing. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I thought, okay, I'll do, I'll be a management consultant because everyone, that's the done thing. Um, then I realized I couldn't really count very well. And that basically and the man said something like, you know, can you estimate how much orange juice is drunk in the US every day? And I just I blanked. And mm-hmm. and he, he was trying to help, you know, he said to me, what's the population of the US? And you know, how many people like the tri-? and I was yeah. just, you know, so anyway, but I, I, I figured out very yeah, management consultancy was not really my forte. Um, and I ended up doing basically, you know, a variety of different jobs. I, I, I ended up in an advertising agency, um, you know, doing sort of account planning, account management. Um, I did various marketing jobs. I, for, for basically for the next 10 years, I did a series of different jobs. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I got a I then went and well, um, got further qualification to teach English as a second language. Um, I did some modeling. I did some um, dog training. I did um, I did some um, like a sales rep job for educational publish. I, I just did a huge variety of different things. And and I think I kept trying to, f- you know, I felt very much thought of like I was, you know, that thing about fitting a square peg into mm-hmm. a round hole. Mm-hmm. You really were trying to be something that you weren't, but you you were trying so hard. Yes. Um, and, and also because it felt very much like a, a little bit like a dirty secret, you know, like mm-hmm. at least in the sort of the, the background that I was from in, yes. in terms of what was acceptable. Um, you know, you never wanted to quite admit it that yeah. you had this, this dream of this hankering because it seemed so scandalous in a way, or, or not right. just scandalous, it was like laughable that you know people would just yes, you know, they wouldn't take so, you seriously. Yeah. Yeah, that, that yeah. you're even considering that. Yes. Um, and so, you know, so you, every time it came up, I just sort of, you know, pushed it away and ignored it. Um, I, I did have a brief period where when we were still in the UK, um, this is just after I started working. And I I, I, I can't remember how I got, I got, I got involved in a local writers group and I got, I got very friendly with several authors who were lovely. And this was around the time when Chiclet was very mm-hmm. um, in oh, Bridget Jones and all of that. And I love Bridget mm-hmm. Jones. And I thought to myself, oh, maybe you know like I mm-hmm. could, just not not seriously but just maybe just try you know but it was like a dirty secret you know mm-hmm. that you sort of did in your even to yourself you didn't really want to admit that you were trying to write a book you know and mm-hmm. um and then finally and then we actually um I, I I got married and we decided to emigrate um and we moved down under and when we first came out here I didn't have a job so in a way it was almost like a forced break you know and, and my husband is amazing he's incredibly supportive and and 
he basically said, why don't you just, you know, write a novel, try it, you know? And, and, and um, so anyway, I, I gave myself a few months. I thought, right, I'm just, you know, I'm going to do it. I'm going to write a chiclet and da, 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 da. And I'm very impatient. So I wrote, at the time, the advice was you should write, finish a book and then look for an agent. This is the whole trad room. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. um, I wrote three chapters, basically, and decided, <laughs> right, yeah, I'm not going to waste time while, I, while I'm writing the book. Because I, I knew the whole process was a lot of rejection. You know, I, mm-hmm. I'd done all the research and I yeah. knew that. So I sent off these, you know, these three chapters with, with the letters, query letters to agents. And I actually got... Um, um accepted by an agent very quickly and she she came back and she said to me where's the rest of the book and I went uh actually I only have three chapters that happened <laughs> to me too <laughs> and, um yeah so anyway but she was lovely my agent was lovely and so she submitted and I, I actually got very close to a book deal at the time um it was with Holder and Stoughton who are now um owned by Hachette I think mm, yeah. um and it was all getting very, you know, like I went back to the UK and they, they were taking me out to lunch and they all sounded great. And then the editor actually left um, mm-hmm. and the new editor. And I think, I, I don't know whether, you know, these things happen or what, but the new editor came in and they're not as keen because it's not their pet project. And, mm-hmm. you know, right. all that sort of thing. so anyway, they, they dropped the idea. And I very quickly, which I'm ashamed to think about it now, um, I very quickly sort of thought, right, that's it, you know, that just shows the whole thing is a waste of time. I'm a yeah. failure, you know. Yeah. I knew it. It was, it was almost like I was prone to prove to myself that I was stupid to even mm-hmm. consider this laughable career because I'd always been told from a child that you don't do this kind of thing, you know, see what happens yeah. when, when you're traveling. <laughs> you know? um, and so I just gave up. And 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 I, when I think back now, I feel quite, you know, ashamed of myself because, you know, mm-hmm. they always talk about being a writer, you should be persistent. But right. I... I at the time I mean I have writer friends from then who you know persisted for the next 10 years and I just stopped writing altogether um, and I went on to do all these various other job jobs um, but I I think over the course of the next 10 years I kept it was like there was a yearning you know like you, mm-hmm. you were very always like unhappy a part of you and you kept mm-hmm. trying to convince yourself that you were you were fine and you were happy and this is right. what you were meant to be doing and um, and anyway, eventually I was approaching my big 4 and I and I mm-hmm. thought, you know, you start doing all those things where you start thinking and you think, oh God, you know, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> you know, right, exactly. <laughs> all those questions. And then like it all came back to me. And, and actually at the time I fell into writing a little bit where I had a great Dane at the time and she had a very popular blog. Um, and I, I ended up being contacted by Dog Magazine and asked whether I would do an article about what it's like to live with a Great Dane. And so I wrote <laughs> wrote this as a personal piece, um, and then they actually paid me, which oh. I was quite shocked because I'd never, I hadn't expected it, you know. And right, it was right. a decent amount of money because um, it was in pounds. So by the time you converted into you know New Zealand dollars at the time, we'd gone to New Zealand first, um, and it was a real revelation for me. I just suddenly thought, oh you can actually earn money with mm-hmm. writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was like a door or a window open suddenly. And, and I suddenly thought maybe this could be, you know, a career as opposed right. to, well, anyway, I, I sort of, and my husband was really supportive. So I, I sort of threw myself into the whole, con, you know, researching the whole thing. And, and I started approaching magazines and, you know, um, sending proposals in for mag- article ideas. And I got picked up quite quickly and got regular um, sort of commissions from a set mm-hmm. number of publications. So I sort of quite quickly built up a steady kind of freelance writing, um, I guess, I don't know, career is too big a word for it, but, but you know, yeah. 
yeah, I was doing it basically as my full-time job. Um, and I did block various other things on the side, but um, like, like modeling stuff, I was continuing that. So it, it's, um, it was quite, but then I, I did that for about, I think three or four, five years. And then I, I think even though I was doing that and I, and I thought, okay, I've done it. You know, like my goal was always to earn a living from writing. Mm-hmm. Actually, then I realized my, actually my goal was really to earn a living um writing books yeah yeah fiction yeah it was like you you sort of went halfway there and then you sort of admitted the full thing to yourself yeah yeah, exactly um and so I I sort of thought okay fine and and then um I I thought back on my experience with with, you know with the trad publisher and Mm -hmm. I thought I really want to go through all that again and you know the submission or whatever and that was around the time when all there were lots of articles about you know KDP and indie publishing and um Oh God, I can't remember her name. That Amanda, somebody or other, who you know, they sort of they were very successful. Yes, Amanda Hawking. Yeah, Mm -hmm. all these successes, and so it made me sort of think, and and it really appealed to me the idea that you know you didn't have to, well, basically wait for those gatekeepers and stuff. And I thought, okay, I'll try it. Um, and I did it actually with a children's book at first, um, because at, because of my dog blog at the time, the my great dad's blog, um, I did the whole sort of children's mystery middle grade thing, which as you can probably know, it's like the worst thing to do in, in any <laughs> Very hard to sell any books. Children's fiction, yeah. Books, yeah. But, you know, yeah, you always sort of, you know, I didn't think I'd do it the easier. But anyway, I did it, but it, it was a good learning, you know, curve. And mm. I, I very quickly worked out that if I wanted to actually make a living from, mm-hmm. from my books, I had to write adult fiction and not children's because, right. you know, you realize there was parents buying the books and things. Yes. Um, and so then I moved into, a, you know, into adult fiction. This was in 2014. So I wasn't quite in the sort of the early gold rush, but I just come in at the end of it. And, and, um, and I, and of course, the first thing I did stupidly was I wrote what I love, which is people always say, write what you love. Mm-hmm. And I didn't understand a single thing about market or what, you know, what was nothing like that. I just wrote, and I wrote this romantic suspense that was much more like, I love Mary Stewart. So it's that sort of um, older fashion romantic suspense, um, mm-hmm. a, lot less, a lot less steamy. And um, yeah, it's a different tone it, anyway. To, yeah, and it doesn't fit anywhere because I did the same thing. No, exactly. Let me show you. <laughs> you know, so I wrote that to trilogy, and yeah, it was a real struggle basically to market because it didn't. It was a cross-genre book. You know, it wasn't sexy enough for the romantic suspense mm-hmm. people, but it wasn't. It was too sexy for the mystery suspense people, and it just really didn't yes. fit in anywhere. Um, I also didn't think, you know, through things like like it's set in Singapore because I was familiar with Singapore, mm-hmm. but. In hindsight, I think maybe I should have set it in Paris or you yes. know, a more aspirational destination. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't think of any of those things, and um, but you know, it came out. And then, I, then I thought, okay, everyone at the time was saying you've got to write romance if you really mm-hmm. want to sell. Yeah. So I thought, okay, I'll write romance. So right. then I did a series of sweet romances because I I thought I wasn't very good at writing the steamy stuff. I'll do the you know sweet romance. And, um, and that sort of did okay. But again, I didn't, you know, I didn't do my, I didn't do market research, basically. I didn't really understand the whole writing to market thing. And I didn't understand the sweet romance. You really, at the time anyway, it was either Amish or like Western, um, you know, the cowboy bride type thing. And so I didn't do any of that. I did this random (laughs) beach romance set in Australia, you know, centered around four vets at a um, veterinary animal hospital. And, Mm -hmm. you know, each vet would have their story and, so anyway, it's um it did okay, but you know it didn't set the world on fire, and and right, I, I got right. very very discouraged. Um, I you know I just wanted to give the whole thing. I was ready to just give up on the whole indie thing. I just thought, right, I'm a failure. I can't sell. And right. for me, it was always like because 
for me, I had this whole problem of the, the, it had to be like a viable career against what I should have done. Right. The, the actual part of the book's earning was quite important, you know, like mm-hmm. as in I kept measuring myself against, you know, what I would have earned if I'd gone and gone back to an office job, you know, as a, as a right. marketing manager or something. Um, anyway, then my, my husband just kept saying, you can't give up, you know, you've just got to keep trying. And then I heard um, on at the time, a lot of the in on the sort of author um, groups, they were talking about a thing called JAFF. I don't know if you've heard of JAFF. So J-A-F-F, mm-hmm, um, yeah. which stands for Jane Austen fan fiction. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a it's a very, very, very niche genre, but it's for people who just love, you know, mainly Pride and Prejudice, but mm-hmm. any of the Jane Austen books. And there are variations. So you take the same characters and the same sort of background, but you basically write your own, well, it's fan fiction anyway, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there's a rabid rabid audience for it and I mm-hmm. didn't know anything about this but I thought you know at the time there were several authors who were very friendly and very helpful they were like trying you know they, they were mm-hmm. having great success in it and I thought what have I got to lose you know and I'd never written historical fiction but I I thought okay um I'll give it a go and actually I'm a, I'm a massive Jane Austen fan anyway like I can I sort of watch you know read the books hundred and watch the BBC version yeah. loads yeah. of times <laughs> quote a lot of it verbatim and so and my own voice is quite sort of formal um, mm. when I write um, so I think it I, I don't know I, I found that when I started doing it I sort of took to it like a duck to water it was all very easy in a way to, to, to drop into that sort of language mm-hmm. um, and anyway I wasn't expecting from it I wrote the first book and I still vividly remember that day I I published the book and went off went out and said to my husband I'm going off for a walk and I went out for an hour and the book had gone live and I came back home, stepped in. My husband was waiting for me and he looked at me and he said, it sold 40 copies in the first hour it's gone live. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and it was four ninety nine. this book. It wasn't oh. this. Yeah. And this was and, in you know, 20. This was in 2015. Okay. Yeah. And that was like when a lot of people were releasing at 99 cents, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. But in this huge. niche, it yeah. was like. It was my first lesson of what it is to write to a hungry market, like like what difference it makes to have a market for something. Because mm-hmm. up to then, it was like a massive uphill battle of, you know, you always believe that if you write good enough and da 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 and all the rest mm-hmm. of it. And this, right. you know, it was it was a shock. I couldn't believe it. And there was no promotion. I had no platform, nothing. It was literally this book was published. And because there was a hungry market for these kinds of books, and they found it somehow. Yeah. And anyway, so that was... It really restored my my mojo in terms of you know like I, I was really ready to just give up and I thought okay I can do this you know? yeah. so I just spent the rest of 2015 writing Jeff um, books yeah. and I wrote six books um, and they were not they're not very long um, but you know they all have to fit you know certain expectations that readers in the genre want. Um, and I mean, it was amazing. It was just like, you know, with no marketing, no promotion, nothing. The books just sold like crazy at four ninety nine, and and um, yeah. So that it was just staggering. Would you, yeah, would you consider that like your first big success? Was that what let you know you could keep going? Yes, yeah. I mean, I, it was success because it wasn't what I really wanted to write, but it was the first time I, I. If you measure success by the whole, you know, people say you need to reach six figures or all that kind of stuff, then then yes, I suppose, you know, yeah. from a mon- from a sales point of view, yes. And, yeah. the, you know, the books sort of just took off. Um, but I think by the end of 2015, I realized that I, it wasn't what I wanted to do. I, you know, I, 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 I could see that I didn't want to write Jeff for the rest of my life. I mean, there were people right. who do it's their thing, but it just wasn't mine. And I, and I, 
I think up to then I'd been like I'm a mystery reader really and a right, crime right. reader mm-hmm. all the time and, and I you know how you're scared to do the one thing that you love best right yes. you don't yes. have permission or you're not right. good enough to do that mm-hmm. but when I was writing those sweet romances I kept putting a dead body in every story and and you know I get to the end and people were like but they don't get together and I'm like yeah but you know who, who got murdered? Who was the murderer? And, and they're just like, that's not the point in a romance. You need to know whether they get together. It's not actually important whether you find out the murderer. About the dead body, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, I sort of thought myself, maybe I should be writing mysteries instead because the dead body was obviously really important to me. So I, in 2006, I just, at the end of 2015, I thought, right, okay, you know, I, I done this and I felt like I could do it. So I, I decided to do this, you know, move into mysteries. And I initially had this idea of doing a mystery series based inspired by my own experience when I was at Oxford. But, and I had this whole thing about it was, you know, inspired sort of a bit like Inspector Morse, but with a female lead and she would be a young, you know, amateur detective. But right. this time I actually real, <laughs> I actually learned my lesson. I did market research. <laughs> like I didn't just wander into it like last time. And I, um, I looked around and I realized that actually as an amateur sleuth, it's got to be cozy and if it's cozy, it's got to have all the cozy tropes. And, you know, and I looked at my idea and I thought that's not going to work. And so I tweaked it. I, I I started writing already and I changed the premise. I said, OK, instead of my original idea was a student in Oxford, in the world of Oxford. I thought it'd be quite interesting for readers to find out more about the world of the university. Right. With all the odd quirks and right. that sort of thing. Yeah. But then I realized, oh, actually, it's not really cozy. So I thought, fine, I'll make her an ex-graduate who comes back to Oxford. And she's given mm-hmm. up a, a high-flying career to basically open a tea room. Um, and she's got to face all the sort of, you know, things I could relate to myself in terms of not doing the conventional accepted path. And, you know, people sort of saying, what are you doing with your Oxford, Oxford degree? Oxford, yeah. <laughs> you know? um, and she's got, like, you know, a mother who's very, a real posh, kind of quite a snobby mother. Um, you know, they come from sort of, you know, in the UK, the class mm-hmm. system's quite alive and well. And and so there is, you know, all that sort of thing. And and obviously, she opens the tea room and things are going well. And then, you know, there's a, it's an American it's tourist. Body. <laughs> yes, gets murdered with a scone, one of her own her scones. And lo and behold, guess what? The detective in charge of it is her old flame from college, who she <laughs> basically rejected eight years ago. You know, he wanted to marry her. and He's from working class. And she's mm-hmm. from a sort of middle upper class family and her parents disapproved, her mother disapproved. And so it's, it's, a, there's a lot of backgrounds about her working through her own kind of, you know, learning to deal with, you know, her own issues about approval from her mother's approval and all that sort of thing. Um, but anyway, that sort of, and, and, and so I, so I put that in and I thought, right, I've got to have, you know, I have, I have a group of what I call the old biddies. So there are four mm-hmm. old ladies that are in the village that the tea room's in. Um, who are nosy and you know etc there's a cat there's a lot of baking there's all the little descriptions of quaint British um, you know village setting and baking so basically I I ticked the cozy boxes <laughs> um, and yeah I think from a successful you know, I mean that series did very well out the gate so yeah and yeah I've never really well, looked back since yeah I think that's interesting because like you have learned how to take an idea and fit it into what the market wants, but it's still something you want to write and it's still the themes that you want to explore. And I think yeah. a lot of people feel like, oh, if I'm going to make this sell, I have to change everything about it and I won't enjoy it. But you can, you're, you're showing that you can tweak it just a little bit so that it fits yeah. the market, but you still like writing it. 
Yeah. Yes. And I would even say, I would venture to say that's probably why it's successful because you have put the things you love about writing and the tropes and expectations of the genre you've married those together. And, and that's why it's done so well, I would think. Yeah, yeah. That's that's my philosophy. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I was lucky that there, there weren't. It was quite different, and there were not many British cozies mm-hmm. at the time when it came out. You know, there were there were cozies, but not very many in a British setting. So mm-hmm. it became sort of my brand, really. That you know, mm-hmm. like I didn't realize there were so many Anglophiles, especially in the, in yeah. the US. Yeah, yeah, yeah. British afternoon tea thing. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that's awesome. any, I think that is a great illustration of like learning about writing and craft. Is there any other thing that, you know, you wish you had known about writing and craft when you got started? Um, I mean, I, I always feel like when I, you know, when you know, when you get these, um, sometimes you get other writers writing and asking you, mm-hmm. you know, and I, and I always, it's a terrible thing to say. It's almost like sacrilege, but I feel like saying like don't care too much about things like grammar. Like I don't mean that in a bad way. Like you obviously you should you know make sure. But, but what I mean is, sorry that came out wrong. What I mean is, you know, like, I have horrible grammar, so I'm like, yeah, right, she's right. <laughs> no, what I I, I mean it should. But what I mean is hire like hire professional editor and proofreader, yes. and yes. do not skimp on that. But when it comes to writing, don't care about that. Because I feel like, especially if you're someone like me, who has a massive, massive internal editor and, you know, critics sitting on your shoulder and constantly self-doubting yourself. And it's hard enough trying to get any words down on paper. You know, it's, yes. it's a huge yeah. struggle. So if I'm constantly thinking, which I was in the beginning, you know, no passive voice and, blah, 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 you know, I have a terrible problem with adverbs. Like, I love adverbs. I put, you know, Lee after everything. He went over, <laughs> yeah. he said, you know, gossipy, and she looked at him brightly and, you know, he regarded her tenderly and, you know, like, I love yeah. my um, and I And I just find, like, the best thing to do, I think, is to write, just write. Because if yes. you hire a professional editor who's going to clean up, I don't care about that anymore. I just write whatever. Because I just tell my editor, go through, delete every adverb in there. I will just, you know, just accept all your changes. I'm not going to mm-hmm. argue with anything. But just, I just want to be free to, to get my story out. And, and right. if, that, if my natural voice is to write like that, I just let myself be free to write like that. That's um, very smart. You, you know, whereas if you think too much about passive voice and don't do this and don't do that, it, it's so, you, I, I just think as writers, we're so full of doubt anyway. Yeah. And, and you know, if you've got your, a writer, I'm sorry, an editor there, you don't have to worry. And the other thing I always think is, I mean, obviously you should make an effort. And this is why I say it's sacrilege because you shouldn't really say this, but I feel like no matter how much you try, you're never going to be as good as a professional editor. Like right. you'll always, they always know the grammar better than you. So mm-hmm. just let them get on with their job and you do the thing that you're best at, which is focus on the storytelling and the characters. Cause that's really what readers come to your right. books. Yes. for. They don't come yes. for the perfectly placed comma. No. Obviously you should have perfectly placed commas, but let someone else do it. Right. Um, yeah. I feel like it's a bit like, um, you know, like say Tina Turner when she's going on stage, right? Her job is to be Tina Turner because no one else can do that. She can, mm-hmm. she goes on stage, she sings and she dances. No one else can do that part. But she doesn't do her own hair, her own makeup, because basically her makeup artist is a much better person at doing it than she yes. can ever be. So yes. why does she, she's not going to worry about that. She just lets them do her job to make herself look beautiful. And she right. just focuses on going on stage and singing and dancing amazingly. So, right. yeah, I as a writer, that's what you should focus on. Right. I read um, Jennifer Probst's book, Right Naked, 
is the name of it. And so it's a writing book and it's, it's kind of a memoir and a writing book. But she says in there that um, she asked Susan Elizabeth Phillips, who is, was my writing idol um, about writing and what she wished she had known. And Susan said, I wish I had given myself permission to suck more. You know, and so because writing that first draft or just writing in general, you can self-edit yourself to death and you can self-edit your voice out. So when I'm writing my first draft, I have a sticky note that goes right next to my computer that says you have permission to suck. And so then I can just get it out and I don't have to worry about the other, you know, when I start feeling that self-editor yeah. or feeling that insecurity that this is horrible, then I see the note and I go, oh, I have permission to suck. So then I can go on. So, yeah, I think but that's I really even, important. It's even more than this the sort of permission to suck because you you always think, well, I do. Well, that's true too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's yeah. more this sort of um, almost like wallowing in your own yes. work, writing yes. works is what I mean. So I relish every adverb I put in. <laughs> You know, like, I don't care. I sort of think I'm doing it as ridiculously, you know, bad purple prose as I want, because at least it's in there. And then I can clean yes. it up. They don't yes. they can clean it up. I don't care. Yes, yeah. exactly. You know? exactly. Well, I will say it's very freeing to write the 1920s historical because they really did talk with lots of adverbs. So my conversation <laughs> in those books, people are always <laughs> gassing me. And, you know, <laughs> it was wonderful, you know, all these exaggerated things. Mockingly, not, yes. <laughs> yes, that we would not say. But it is, it was lots of fun. That first book, I was like, oh, I think this is ghastly. And I think this is, and I just threw them all in there. And I <laughs> oh, just went back fun. and deleted quite a few of them later. But, you know, I left quite a few in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, what do you wish you'd known about marketing in the beginning? Um, I think with marketing, the biggest thing, was probably this whole thing about, you know, cream rises to the top is yes. not true. Um, I mean, it's a terrible thing to say, but, you know, I've been brought up with the whole work ethic thing. And yes. if you work really hard at something and if it's good quality, it'll find its own, it'll, yeah. it'll rise to the top, it'll naturally do well. And it was a very hard, blunt lesson that, that from a marketing point of view, you know, from a, right. from a commercial point of view, that's not necessarily true. And that, mm-hmm. that, it, that it's the, having the right market for the right, like having the appropriate product for the right market is the key to success. Right, really. right. Well, you know, there is no such thing as a poor product because there are a lot of poor products on the market, but if you want to call it that, they're not there, but there are poorly targeted products, I think, mm-hmm. but not necessarily poor products, you, can, you know, because it's, it's so subjective what's good and what's bad, but what, if there's a hungry market for something, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that fits what they want, you know, the whole thing about if you've got a really crappy plastic fork, um, sorry, knife, but what you, you know, and, and, you know, everyone else has got a spoon, but what you really need is a knife. You're still going to go for the plastic knife. Right, 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 right. It fits what you want more than, you know, all the wonderful sterling gold spoons out there. So, right. <laughs> so yeah, I think it's, that's what I've learned that it's not really about, because, you know, you start the whole thing thinking it's all about how good you are as a writer yeah. and how good quality of your books is and and you know not that I'm trying to write crap books but you sort of I think understand a bit better now that your your measure of success as you call it is mm-hmm. is um yeah probably dependent more on understanding the market and understanding you know meeting right. the, the right. market right right yeah right. I would agree with that that yeah it, it, it people read for to escape and for pleasure and they want to get into a character's life and explore that world 
and sometimes the quality of the writing is not that important to them, you know? So like, I think we should, like you're saying, we should try. That's negative quality. That's the thing. Like it's, it's all, you know, like it is subjective. Yeah. Yeah. Part of it. Um, but, but that's, that's what I mean, like in terms of marketing it, like um, you could market the best quality, right? Whatever you're, how do you want to define quality? And if it's not fitting that market, you still won't get anywhere. Yeah, so right, sort of right. begins, I think, with the product itself, which mm-hmm. is a really hard thing to, to, to say, to tell people, because sometimes, you know, you're very attached to the product and, and I've right. been there. You, you, you've written the wrong product, basically, or not wrong, maybe, but a difficult product. Yes. Yeah. And no amount of marketing is ever going to help that really, unless a new market is created for that product, which, right. which wants that very unique thing. And sometimes you're lucky. And I think a lot of times, you know, not, not taking away anything from people who are very successful, but you can be very lucky in a sense of, that whatever it is you love to write or whatever happens to be the thing a lot of people love as well. And then that's an easier sell, I think. Right. Um, right. right. Yeah. Whereas if it's a mismatch, it's a harder sell. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 And all the marketing advertising and covers and whatever. Is, you know. Yeah. It may not, you can refine only to a certain point in, yeah. yeah, there's a point where it's not going to be able or it's to like, you know, that, whole thing about pushing the thing uphill and you just keeps rolling back down. Right, <laughs> yeah. right, right. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, I mean, we talk about this a lot on here, but knowing your genre expectations and uh, knowing what the readers in that genre want. I mean, there are some readers, especially some KU readers, they just, they just want the experience of that book. Like they want whatever experience that book gives them and they don't sit back and worry about things they just want the they want to be immersed in that experience and if you can do that um then and you know that about your genre then you can just write as fast as you want to write and as you know I mean not saying poorly because I really believe people can write books really good books fast I can't but I believe other people can I've read them and so um but just knowing that about your genre. Like I think some sci-fi readers, they just want that experience. They just want to be in those worlds and mm. they'll read it, pick up another one, read it and pick up another one. Michael Anderley calls those well readers, but yeah, just, you just have to know that though about your genre where yeah. other, other genres want a little bit more something, whatever it is, world building, um, Less adverbs. I mean, it doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) You just have to know. You just have to know what that is. Yeah. But see, even the world building, sometimes, you know, it doesn't even have such great world building. As long as you drop in all the ingredients that they wanted it that yes you know yes. you really fancy eating something spicy or mm-hmm. you really want something sweet and yes. actually what you want is that thing on your tongue and it doesn't yes. sometimes you're not that fussy about what it exactly. is exactly exactly donut in the world but at that moment you're craving something sweet and that donut hits the spot and right and, you know I, and they can yeah i agree the best you know tortilla chips or the best steak but at that moment the crappy donut from the whatever you know service station convenience store, store. yeah exactly <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, well what assumptions did you make at the beginning of your writing career and did they turn out to be right or wrong we talked about it a little bit but do you have any um assumptions uh, well, well one of the things I thought was that 
I, I really did think this that that if you as you write more books, it would get easier, but it doesn't. Yeah. Like no. I get so frustrated with myself. Like you know, now when I'm writing and I'm thinking, I've done this twenty five thirty times by now. You know, it should be quicker and easier. I should, I should just know. I should just. Why am I getting stuck? Why, you know, why is it so difficult? And 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 then I'm always convinced every book I've written is this one is the worst ever. I've never had. I've never been so stuck. I've never had such dread. You know, and my husband is there. My poor, long-suffering husband, going, just trust in the process. You went through this last time. Remember, it was the worst book ever. But you, you, you know, you found the solution in the end. After a week, it just it just magically appears by itself. And I'm like, no, no, no. This you don't understand. This is like you know it's different this one and <laughs> I, I you know I really thought I don't know why I, it, shouldn't, it should be don't you think it should be like you know but yes know, it should be but it's not no you it's would think easier. it would be easier and it doesn't they say it's a skill right they say writing is a craft like so you know like say you make a cake I mean by the time you make your 30th cake it should be right. a lot easier right but I think we're breaking different cakes every time right I oh, mean yes yeah. Every True. one of them has a different element or different. And for me, a lot of times I think, oh, well, I don't want to write, you know, that thing, that trope, that situation. I want to do this new one that I've never done before. So oh, it's like yeah. I'm continuing yeah. to like yeah. add in elements that make it more difficult. Yeah, me too. Yeah, that's true. I never like to repeat myself. So I'm always trying with every book. If I'll think, oh, I did that one. I already did a mm-hmm. sort of a locked room mystery. I don't really yeah. want this one to be similar. And, yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and I think, you know, when you start, you don't know what you don't know. But as you go along, you learn more and you're like, um, you expect more from yourself, I think. I think that the expectations, for me anyway, the expectations I have of myself are higher now than they were when I wrote the first book because I didn't know some things. And also because I write comedy and I've said this a million times that I wish I had not used all my good jokes in the first two books because now <laughs> I have to reach a lot higher to it's find those. More work. Yeah, it's a lot more work. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think as you go along, it, it should get easier, but it doesn't. Uh, it just doesn't. We've Sarah and I have talked about this a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, have you ever made a mistake that you thought, um, that, I mean, that turned out to be a good thing? Like something you thought, oh, I've really screwed this up, but then it turned out to be okay. Um, I mean, it didn't turn out to be okay, but it, it led to a bet. It sort of led to something good, I suppose, yeah. which is, um, this was a few years ago. It was a time when you never know, was launching at 99. Sarah, you mentioned yes. earlier about running yeah. 99 cents. Yeah. And, and I'm very, um, I'm, I have very little courage of my own conviction <laughs> as, as, a, as an author. Yeah. Funny enough, another aspect of my life, I don't know why, but when it comes to writing and being an author, I have very little confidence. Um, and so anyone says anything on a Facebook group, another author, if they sound remotely, you know, and sometimes people can sound very confident and in the right. know, um, right. if you're not necessarily basing it on very much, um, I don't know, experience yeah, or, or maybe. You know, proper date. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but you know I'm like completely taken in and so I just and so I listen to it and everyone's like you must you know if you launch it at 99 cents you know you'll sell like 10 times what you normally sell and and it'll you know it'll make you'll be in the top 100 on Amazon and it'll make all the difference and, da, 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 da. and so this was my the fourth book in my Oxford series at the time and and they've been you know they've been doing very well and they came out you know at full price etc which was 4.99 at the time mm-hmm. um and I and I sort of thought okay you know I've got to do this thing everyone else is doing I'm always so not, I'm so bad at not you know joining in and, and, right. and doing you know 
sort of courageous marketing things. So I did it and it was an absolute disaster. Like I, I just, I didn't sell that much more, basically. I, I hardly yeah. sold much more than my normal. And But I sold everything at 99 cents. So, you know, yes. you can imagine how little money I made. Yes, you and were I watching was, many fly out the window. I yes, did that. It was yeah. awful. I felt sick. And and what's more is when I email my list with this whole thing of like, you know, I'm launching it for you, especially at 99 cents, because yeah, I was going to raise the price afterwards. But, you know, for my, for my you know, your hardcore fans, it's supposed to be this great gift you give them. Nobody thanked me. Everybody just said, oh, I'm so happy for the book. Like they were excited about the book, but not, I didn't receive a single email that said, thanks for the discount. Yeah. So I, I said, you know what? my readers actually don't really care yeah. or at least maybe the ones who cared didn't eat, didn't thank me. I don't know, but yes. I, I, you know, I got a lot of replies. People were very excited about the book, but not one single person commented on the discount. So I suddenly thought to myself, hang on a minute, maybe I don't have such price sensitive readers. Like why am I following this strategy and this path when right. maybe that's, you know, like it was the first time I really realized that there are different readerships out there i guess and and mm-hmm. and you know and and you don't have to you know you know with indie there's the whole race to the bottom i think yes. very often mm-hmm. um, and and there's always the whole thing of bargains and and using price to to be the big appeal factor yes, yes. um and that was the first time i sort of you know sort of thought hang on maybe i don't need to do them it, you know, I never done it before. And I, right. so anyway, I, because of that, I, I then took, I went the other way. So for the next release, I released not only at full price, I put my prices up. So I put everything <laughs> at five ninety nine. I thought, what the hell, whatever, you know? Yeah. And so I raised everything across the board to five ninety nine and re- and released the next one at five. It was the best release I had. It was, yeah. it was amazing. I mean, I sold, you know, more books and at five ninety nine. So it was amazing. And right. since then I, I've never looked back. I raised all my prices across, but I did test it. Like, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. that's my scientific kind of degree background, whatever yes. it does. So I always test things and I, you know, I, I do it for like, say a month and I check the sales and I, you know, check it again. And and there was no drop in sales, not, not noticeably anyway. So I sort of thought to myself, and you know, the thing is, I should have known this when I used to work in advertising, we used to, you know, pricing is a form of branding. And, mm-hmm, and, you know, mm-hmm. we used to create products just purely by pricing. You know, you'd be, you have a company that comes to you and says, right, I sell washing powder, you know, and like we need a new product on the shelves. And you're just like, okay, price it higher and put, make the box black and gold and call it, you know, premium. Mm-hmm. And suddenly you'll find a lot of people buy that. Not because the stuff in it is actually that different, but just because right. there is a mentality. You know, there's a, speed, yeah. there's a customer base out there who believe that more expensive must be better. And so- right it sort of made me think that actually there are niches and, you know, you don't have to, you can, you can position yourself at the premium end, you know, and that is a conscious choice. And it, and, and it's a, it's a branding thing as well that, you know, you, 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 yeah. and, and, and also I kept to myself, you know what, Apple's still, Apple's still in business and yeah. Tiffany's still in business and all these companies have not made a career out of, you know, race to the bottom. Right. So there's other people out there who are willing to, you know, pay, I guess. Well, I think that's great though, but that, I mean, that's a hard lesson, but it's a great lesson to learn because, yeah, I mean, to to price your books higher, you do find a different audience at every different price point. Yeah. And I was going to say, it does, I feel like, you know, I don't I don't deal so much with the people. I never get anyone asking me about things with sale. I don't get freeloaders asking for free books so much. You know, that sort of, yeah. it's, it's a slightly different audience yeah. and, mm-hmm. and they're used to releasing at full price and yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And, but now you know that, so you've you've tested it and now you know that, and then you can go on and you don't have to wonder. So, I mean, that's a good, 
So, but we always like to follow that question up with what about the opposite? Have you ever had what you thought was just like this super brilliant, amazing idea? And then it turned out to be not so great. Uh, okay. So this is the one I sent the cover. <laughs> yeah. So um, it's, it was, it's two, it's sort of two part, but partly the cover, partly the actual. So this is a, again, a few years ago when, you know, the whole witch cozy thing was, was really the paranormal cozy, but specifically mm-hmm. witch cozy were very big. And again, yeah. I was in all these awful groups and, you know, everybody's saying this is the thing you should be doing if you're in cozy mystery and you should be writing a witch cozy. And and I thought, okay, yes, you know, I can do that. Um, and, and there were two things I just, that I did really wrong. One, one was that I, aside from understanding market, I think you need to understand whether you can write to that market. Like right. you have to understand yourself, which, which I didn't. And I, you know, I thought, okay, you know, I, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do this. And I didn't really understand that, you know, the witch cozies have a particular tone. It's like a very distinct kind of snarky, sassy mm-hmm kind of tone and and it's a very light kind of fun um playful kind of um thing and and I went in with my take which was much more kind of I guess my interest it's, it's darker it's got it's much more legends and mythology and it's based on old English kind of you know legends and this Shakespeare and it's um you know there's a lot of world building and and there's a heroine's got like the hero's journey it, you know it was just it was so totally not witch cozy, but I, but, you know, I thought there was witches in it and there was, you know, there was a vampire, and, you know, th- th- there was family, which is, I understood these were the sort of elements, but, but I didn't realize that I couldn't really replicate the tone. There was a tonal difference, you know, that yes. I, what yeah. I was writing was, was much more fantasy in a way, mm-hmm. I think, more, yeah. Harry, more like Harry Potter type thing, you know, with a uh-huh. big backstory and, and, and sort of yeah anyway yeah. um so so and so that but meanwhile i thought anyway i i i understood packaging by then so i mm-hmm. packaged them all up and i had this what i thought was a brilliant cool idea because my premise was based on they were witches that had um magical powers over chocolate so it was the whole idea of the cacao you know it was the, the whole idea of um the food of the gods and people did believe that chocolate did have some kind of magic power and um I still you know, you know the movie Chocolat? Have you seen uh-huh. that? Yeah, yeah. So that idea there, and and it's because I knew I wanted to write. I love writing about food. Um, you know, it was going to be sort of witchcraft and chocolate and the whole thing. And so I thought, how cool! I'm going to make each cover look like a chocolate bar. You know, with the top with a little bite taken out of it, and and uh-huh. it would be like a half unwrapped chocolate bar, and the chocolate bar wrapping would be the actual cover of the book. You know, mm-hmm. with the title, and and I did all the you know there was a witch witch silhouettes were basically what was the genre yeah. convention mm-hmm. um so I did all that and I put out these covers and 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 everyone loved them I mean they thought they were really cute and you know really original idea because no one else had tried something like this before and and great but but the problem was that they were indicating something that actually the books were not you know mm-hmm. they, they they looked like cute car- because they were cute and cartoonish and 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 they'd play to that genre and then people would buy them and then I think there was a massive mismatch between what the covers look like and what um, what they the actually actual got. story, yeah, yeah. And in the meantime, the people who did enjoy that kind of story, the, the kind of story I was telling, were turned off because of these covers. I think because they weren't picking them up, you know. And right. so I grappled with this because you know you thought it was the coolest idea ever, and and everyone <laughs> kept telling me they were a cool idea. Like I had authors emailing me out of the blue and saying they loved the idea of the cover and you know etc. Um, anyway, I I sort of bit the bullet, and after about I think it was about 
maybe it was just under a year or something. I thought, you know, I, I, I thought I've got to try something else. I, I replaced all the covers and I replaced them with um, the new covers, which are much more fantasy. I don't even yes. see that. Um, you know, which it gives more of the tonal feel of the thing with the backgrounds and, and the whole colors and the, it's darker as well. And I mean, I, I, you know, it's still a, it's still one of those series again that sort of sits between boxes, but I think it the covers represent it much better. And I definitely notice a big difference once I swap the covers in, um, in terms of the sales and the whole yes. sort of response to the series. That, that it was finally finding its audience a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, yeah I mean, I'm looking at them. Hey Sarah, can we put these in the show notes? Yeah, is that before all right and after? Is that okay with you, Cindy? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Because uh, I think that it would be good for the reader. First of all, yeah, you're right. Those first <laughs> those first covers are adorable, but yeah, I get what you're saying. The uh second ones, and I love your titles, they're hilarious. And so <laughs> I mean they're just perfect, but there's a huge difference between the two sets of covers. But I think it'd and be good for the listeners like, to be able to see it. And but they're both you can tell that they're both like a paranormal. Yes, absolutely. Series. Yeah. But I think that the second set you did, it kind of, it, it, it shows more of the tone of the book, but then it also is more similar to your other covers in your other series yeah. as well. So it's kind of like. Yeah, that was another reason I sent the other graphic to show that it also yes. fits in better, I yes. think, with my yes. stable. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The cats are, seem to be a very, your theme. You got a cat <laughs> thing going on, which I love. Yeah. Well, that was one marketing thing I figured out very quickly. That if you put a cat on the cover, the book will sell twice as much. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Do what you got to do. That is true. I yeah. actually do, like, the cats do play a very major role in all the stuff. So it isn't just put on the cover, you know, to get the sales. Like, they, they are key characters as well. So Because yeah, yeah. a lot of my readers are, like, mad cat lovers. Yes. So what's the biggest mindset change you think you've had over your career? Um, I actually think I actually, this is, it was linked to, I think one of your other questions originally was about the whole success thing. And I think that's been my biggest problem actually, in terms of hurdle that I, the biggest thing for me is, and I've only come to this, I think the last six months and I'm still working at it is learning to define success myself because that's my biggest problem. Like I, I, you know, at school, I was like, I was Hermione, really. I just, yeah. you know, I, I always went to the top of the class and I, I, and I went to the kind of school that was very, very competitive in the sense that they used to actually publish rankings and put it up. Like, well, you would do, you would do oh exams. Oh my gosh, and, wow. And calculate your scores and then they would put it up on the wall and then parents would come and copy down each, you know, your, your rankings versus other. It was, it was very, very competitive. And so yeah. you were constantly measured in that way. And, and I think when I started indie, I, it was like a replica almost of what happened at school that I, you know, and there's a whole indie thing, obviously of, you know, the, you know, the stages, like you're a four figure author, then you're a five figure author, then you're a six author figure author. And, and then it was like, you know, seven figures, like the, the ultimate thing. And if you're, and, and definitely there for a while anyway, I think there was a thing in the groups very much that if you're not a seven figure author, you're just not really successful. You know, right. like that was the badge of success. And, right. and I, I think that really killed me because I, I, you know, you, it was like, everything was just, about that you know and, and you know you you get to sort of and there's a vast gulf between getting to six figures and getting to seven you yeah know, like yeah <laughs> you know you sort of think it's like well, it's actually a very big jump and you know and I just I was on this the headlong thing of I had to you know like 
double my earnings every year. Otherwise I'm a failure. And, you know, and then, and I was just, I was really killing myself to, to try and achieve this, this goal, this definition of success that was put there by, I, I guess, arbitrary, I, I don't know, ran, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and yeah. And, and I, and I, and I was, you know, churning, well, not churning, but I was, I was writing like five, six books a year, you know, really pushing myself to do it. And, and then, you know, I'm glad in a way I did it because I, I ran harder to launch myself, if you like, in the beginning. But I think by last year, you know, even before the pandemic hit, I, I was really starting to suffer from burnout and, and I was going from book to book and I was, you know, I was struggling. I, I, I was sort of, I was, I was conscious that a part of me was very, unhappy and stressed but it was almost like you were on this hamster wheel you couldn't get yep. off and the yep. definition of success was that and you know in every author group at the time anyway it was like I've you know everybody was not bragging but you know like people were talking about I've got three books out a month and the next one would be like I've got five books out a month and how much they were earning from that and you just everywhere you were bombarded by all this so yeah and someone like me you know it felt like you were constantly being you know measuring up and coming up a failure because you you know, you couldn't match that. And and I'm not like, you know, I'm not a far, I'm, I guess it all depends on what you mean, but I'm not a fast writer in that sense. Like I'm not able to, to you know, produce 10,000 words a day. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the pandemic really helped because, you know, it does make you stop and sort of take stock. Yes. And I, yes. you know, I suddenly I thought to myself, what am I doing this for? Like, mm-hmm. like, it's crazy. You know, I don't have debt. I don't have dependent, you know, like we don't, you know, we haven't got children we need to put through college. We don't, why am I doing this? Like it was all this mm-hmm. arbitrary number in the sky because some person on the other side of the world said that seven figures is the mark of success. And I right. was working like I was, you know, I had like I was on the streets, you know, like I worked as hard as if I, w- I didn't have money for my next meal kind of right, thing. Right, right, right. Actually, you know, it, it wasn't that, imp- you know, I mean, no, not that. No, I don't. I, I do know. Mm-hmm. It was like, it was crazy. And, and, what was I doing it for? You know, just right. to, to feel like I succeeded because of this. Yeah. So right. anyway, I, I, I sort of took stock and, and I, I sort of thought, you know, all I wanted ages ago was to be able to earn, write, earn a living from writing in, in a way that would match what I could have done if I'd done a proper job, you know, to, yes. to make myself less guilty. And I more than exceeded that already. So why am I, you know, and, 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 that, you know, essentially I wanted a life where I could work from home, write, books you know stories for a living and that's what I'm doing so uh-huh. yeah so I, I think I, I'm still struggling with it but I think the real a, a person is really successful you know when you're when you are able to define your own success and you're not reliant yes. on on someone else's you know and that doesn't have to be writing yes. it could be anything it could be like a person who feels like they need to be in a yacht club and you know right. wear Louis Vuitton all the time or whatever but you know that whole keeping up with the Joneses thing that uh-huh. that you know you have to be able to get to the stage where you are confident enough to define your own success and so I think for me that's the biggest mindset shift in terms of getting me to where I am now because otherwise I really was on that kind of killer hamster trip yes I I think that's really common right now especially in the indie community I mean because I was in the same way I wanted to make a certain dollar figure and then once, you know, if you achieve that, then you're like, oh, well, now I need to go up to this next, you know, I need to, yeah. I need to continue to increase. I think there's something about like, like having that work ethic where you're like, okay, I've done this. Now I need to move on to the next level. And it's, if you, we can step back, like for me, I've had to do the same thing. I'm like, okay, do I want to do that? Do I want to live the life that I would need to live to 
to make that next level? Yeah. Or am I fine now? Or can I even... And you really need that. Like, you know, when you don't yes. actually need your data, like, to be honest, I mean, we don't have any lives anyway. Yeah, you know, like it's, it was, it was, it was almost like you were doing it just for this arbitrary idea of success. When right. You're, you're, and I found that I was wishing my life away. Like I kept thinking, if I could just do this book by this end, then by November, I could do this book. By next February, I could do it. And then, and then one day I, I thought, oh my God, I'm going to be like, you know, I'll be 50 by the time I finish these three series and this, and these three years will be gone. And what if I have done with that time? What about my poor husband? Like, you know, it was just. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. I think you're, that's exactly right. And I think, I mean, I've definitely had the same kind of um, revelation over this last year as a year and a half um, too, with the pandemic and everything. So, yeah, I mean, there are just things that are, I mean, I want, there's money that needs to be made because it's my job, but um, I've sort of had to back off this whole striving for more thing because there are things in my life that require my time and my attention, and I'm not willing to give those up to make more or do more. Do you know, you know what I'm saying? So, yeah. Well, that's... see, I actually, I was someone who did give those things up because I, oh, I did I, too, but I'm like, not doing realized, it anymore. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. I, I now having done it, I suddenly realized that, you know, you're, you know, it's not, you can't like, you, you, can't. you, you need more no. work. and actually recently, you know, I read something or I kept hearing this phrase and I thought that's so true. I never thought about that, which is the whole thing about your job won't love you back. Yes, <laughs> exactly. That's so true. Yeah. That is so and true. You know, of all the things, it's true. That's like, you know, I mean, yes, it's great. You know, I, I love my job. I love writing. And I, I, I feel very grateful that I'm doing what I do. And I'm, you know, I, I'm very grateful to have my readers and stuff. But at the end of the day, there's got to be more to you than yep. just being, a, you know, an indie yeah. writer trying to books. For you. <laughs> like, yeah, I exactly. Know. Yeah, exactly. That's great. I love that answer. Very good. Yeah. Very good answer. So. Well, we're kind of running, getting close to running out of time, but we did want to touch on a couple more things real quick. And one of them is your newsletters. And um, your newsletters are a bit different and um, they're very chatty and they have, you know, lots of images and stuff. And that kind of goes against the grain of what you're told to do, you know, with your newsletter. So could you tell us a little bit about like your content you put in and um, how you connect with your readers through your newsletter? Well, I think the most important thing in a newsletter is to be authentic um, and, you know, to be your genuine self. And so I, I don't think you should force yourself to be chatty if um, if that's not your style, because, you know, it'll come across unnatural as well. But, you know, if it is you, then I, I don't think it hurts to embrace that. Um, I mean, I did worry about it for a long time because, you know, it's not, the as you say, it's not the, the, the usual way you're told you should just send a short, succinct message. You know, here's my new release. These are the buy links. Um, you know, here's the book cover, you know, bam, 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 bye. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I actually tried very hard in the beginning to follow that convention, but I found it really difficult to hit send on those newsletters because it was just so not me. And the way I communicate, I, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm old fashioned, but I'm one of those people who, you know, even on an email, I still feel the need to write a greeting um, and then maybe a line or two of just general polite chit chat um, before diving straight into the business. So, for example, if I'm writing to Jamie, you know, I'd be like, hi, Jamie, you know, uh, you know, how's the new grandchild doing? Um, you sure, you know, you're over excited about a new member of the family, you know, something like that. Just to me, it feels very abrupt um, and, and almost like quite blunt and, and maybe even a bit rude just to get to the point, especially if you know, if I'm asking people to buy my book. Um, and so it just sort of naturally evolved when I was sending out these newsletters that I would always include a few lines of chat before mentioning the new release and then 
you know, and finish with a bit of chat at the end, you know, usually some funny story about something that happened to my, to me recently. Yeah. And, and the other thing is I don't, I guess I see newsletters differently. They're not, to me, not a cold sales tool. Um, you know, I think if all readers want is an alert about a new book, then the big retailers are 10 times better than us doing that job. And, and they're actually more trustworthy in a way in terms of, you know, readers preferring to give their emails. Um, so for, you know, for a reader to give you your e- their email. Um, I think it's it's got to be more than just that you're giving them buy links. But I don't know. I feel like nowadays we're we're sort of bombarded with requests, you know, to join newsletters everywhere. And you know, I've, I don't know about you, but I I just want less things in my inbox, and I never give my email actually unless there's some very specific benefit, like I'm planning to buy something from that site now, and the newsletter will give me a ten percent discount. Or the other time I join is when I'm genuinely interested in something and. I can see added value in terms of information. That's how I see a new author newsletter. It's it's really to me more fan um, fan club type thing, where you know you're it's like when you're genuinely interested in a TV show or a celebrity or a movie. When someone is a fan of something, they're interested in everything about that particular topic. You know, I feel like if readers are your fan, then they're really into all that sort of the DVD extras, if you like. Um, and and also it's that personal kind of emotional connection that they get, um, which they can't get from the retailers, you know. And and I think in a way that's why people, you know, do follow celebrities on Instagram or whatever. It's it's the feeling that they're seeing behind the curtain and they're being invited into the world of the of that person. It's not random. Um, you know, I I still try to make sure that the, the content that I chat about is related to my books. So um, you know, often it's about the inspiration behind the events in the stories. So I think readers love hearing about that. Um, and, you know, for example, my, my recent release, which was in my English Cottage Garden series, one of the characters has a pet slug. And, it, you know, it's a bit of a comic thing. But the reason it's in there is because I once had a pet slug. I was living in an apartment. This was many, many years ago. And I couldn't have a pet and I was desperate for a pet. And I found the slug in a in a head of cabbage that I bought at the supermarket and I decided to keep him in a takeaway container. And I used to feed him, you know, bits of lettuce and things. And and years later, he was the inspiration for this character. I had a picture of him, actually. And so I thought it's, it's, it doesn't be a big, long thing, but it's just a little thing saying, you know, a recent book, you know, it was inspired by a real life story. And you tell the little story. And it's another way for you to re-mention a book, you know, a new release or something without it sounding like buy my book again. <laughs> if you don't have specific events or incidents that inspired something then it could just be something that's taken from now you know so like for example with the same series again I you know talk a lot about the fact that I'm trying to create an English cottage garden myself in Australia and the challenges I'm um I'm meeting with that and I you know I figured that anybody who is reading that series because it's about gardening and mysteries is probably going to be a keen gardener or is interested in gardening at least in some way or form and so you know if I talk about my attempts at gardening and I'm very honest I don't you know it isn't just like Instagram perfect filter photos, you know, I talk about all my failures and and funny things too, then it's something that they would be interested in. Sometimes they just love, people love before and after photos, I've noticed. Um, And, or they love just getting a glimpse into, you know, sort of that behind the curtain idea. So even a picture of your desk, you know, a writer's desk where the magic happens. I did test it because I was worried about turning people off with the long newsletter with all these sort of pictures and stories. I I found that there weren't any more unsubscribes after a long newsletter than you know the old days when I used to do try and do a very succinct one, um, and also my open rates have remained very high. And on the, on the other side is I get a lot of engagement from them. Like you know the, I get a huge amount of um, 
emails back from readers, actually. They tell me about their families, their recent house move, their grandchildren, they're baking their own cats. They send me pictures of their cats, their gardens. Um, you know, and I, I have some lovely messages from readers saying that they, they actually love receiving my, my newsletters as much as my books um, because they just, to them, it's like an event in itself when they get a newsletter from me. And they find it very refreshing because the newsletters are different and they love seeing the photos. Um, and a lot of them say how lovely and refreshing it was to get a really honest um, account. So I think, yeah, I mean, if, if that's your style, then, you know, you should embrace it and not, not worry too much about offending or annoying readers, because it's in a way, it's a bit like pricing or all these other things, you know, you'll attract a certain type of reader. And, you know, if they're really offended or whatever, they want to unsubscribe, they can always get alerts from Amazon or other platforms. You know, I mean, nobody ever missed a book they really want. And I think your voice and your style in the newsletter is part of your brand. And, and it's part of that emotional experience that readers get from you, like an extension of your books. So, I mean, it doesn't mean you have to be chatty. Like, if that's not your thing, you, you know, you shouldn't force it. But it needs to be something, I think, you know, some, something that marks your newsletter as different. And not, it's not just another email with, you know, here's a new book and here's a buy link. Um, you know, whether it's like maybe you're, you know, you're really good at recommending books in your genre or, you know, or maybe you provide, you know, a lot of interesting background for about the world of your stories. For example, like maybe, I don't know, if your books are set around the world of sailing and, you know, you talk in detail about that, or maybe your books are set in a particular destination and then you give a bit more like a travelogue or more interesting info about that. Um, whatever it is, I think you should just embrace that as part of your brand. I agonized over this for a long time and I kept worried, you know, you're always worried because it's so hard to get people on your list that you worry that you're losing subscribers. But in the end, I just decided actually, you know, it's like that quote that people say about um, that, you know, if you try to please everybody, you end up sort of bland and unmemorable. Um, and you're better actually taking a stance and having some people love you, even if it turns others off, you know, a bit like your books as well. You know, you'll be more successful if you're something special to some rather than nothing special to everyone. But this has been great, Sinyu. Thank you so much for coming on and for talking to us and for sharing all your insights. So um, where can people find out more about you? Yes. Um, uh, probably the best place is my website, which is www.hyhanna.com. Um, I am, I, I am on Facebook, but I'm, I'm very bad on social media. Actually, so <laughs> I'm a bit like Hallie's comment on Facebook. I'm sort of, I pass by once every so many years. So when I'm on there, I, I am, I am very interactive, but I, I, the social media doesn't come naturally to me. I don't know if I'm just too old, like the whole thing passed me by, but so I don't think of going on it very much. And so, yeah, I, the best, best place to find me probably, and obviously on Amazon, you know, you can find all my books on my Amazon. Right. Page. Right. Yeah. That's great. Well, we have really enjoyed having you. This has just been so great. Um, I'm, I think our re- our listeners are going to get a lot out of this. Um, and yeah. we're just happy you made time to uh, to talk with us. And you're on the other side of the world. So it's yes. nighttime where you're at. And we appreciate it. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's been really, really nice to chat. All right. We will have all the links in the show notes and those can be found at wishihadknownthenpodcast.com. And thanks to Alexa Larberg for editing and producing the podcast. And we'll see y'all next week. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Wish I'd Known Then podcast. We hope this episode inspired you, empowered you, and made you laugh a little bit too. If you loved it, tell your friends about it. And if you feel so inclined, leave us a review. We look forward to being with you again next week.